0: You're listening to City Church. Genesis chapter 22, verse number 14. It says this. Are you ready? Be up on the screen. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh, if you've been around church for any length of time. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Read it one more time. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Let's pray. God, thank you for an opportunity to gather here this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to read your word. Jesus, we humble ourselves right now. Acknowledge the fact that apart from you, we can do nothing. God, we wholeheartedly want to hear from Jesus today. And so I pray, God, no matter what's going on in our personal lives, that you would divinely, supernaturally curtail, job, custom fit this morning to each of our personal lives. Lord, I, I, I just pray that you would really get to the guts, get to the root of our heart and our relationship with you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Sometimes at City Church, you come and, you know, you, gotta, you get to write down the seven keys to this or the four things to that. And that's great. We, we do that. Today, there's no keys. There's no points. Okay? So you're not going to have a whole lot to write down in terms of, well, these are the four things I get to walk away with. Instead, we're going to go right deep down into the guts, into the core of how you interact with God, how you think about God, how you go back and forth in a relationship with God. And this is one of the most crucial truths, one of the most crucial realities, if not the most crucial reality that we're going to massage and kind of focus on today. And I don't know if you're like me, but if you're anything like me, you've probably discovered that in your faith walk, you leak. Does anybody else leak? You leak. Like, in other words, you're like, I'm full of faith one day, and then the next day it's like, oh, I'm scared, and I'm afraid, and I don't know what happened, and, and I know this truth one day, and the next day it's like, what happened to that truth I used to know? And sometimes spiritual things are so alive and present in your reality, and other times they're just this distant kind of forgotten thought. And so today I want to press to the surface something very important. But in order to do that, I've got to lay a little foundation. So we're going to get a little theological today. So just try to stay with me and, uh, and don't, uh, don't zone out, all right? So I want to give you a little dissertation on this idea of covenant, all right? Now, covenant means sacred promise, an agreement, uh, a divine promise. And God is a covenant God. He's a God that often uses and operates by covenant. There it is. I knew it was here. Praise the Lord. A sacred promise. uh, An agreement with stipulations, with conditions. Now, in the first story of the Bible, if you want to understand the nature of God, you see that right away, God is making a covenant. He's making a covenant with His creation. And with specifically... Adam and Eve, all right? So God makes this divine covenant, and he blesses Adam and Eve, and he gives them a responsibility. Subdue the earth, okay? And the symbol of the covenant, if you remember the story from Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, if you remember that story, the symbol of the covenant is a tree. He calls it the tree of life, and it's in the middle of this garden, And that tree represents the agreement between God and humanity, okay? Now, this covenant was based upon obedience. So humanity, Adam in particular, needed to honor and obey God, and God promised to bless and multiply him. It was an agreement, a sacred agreement, right? There was also a way to rebel or disengage from the covenant. And this was also represented by a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what that fundamentally meant was human beings would decide, I think my knowledge, my understanding, My view of life is superior to the one that God gives me. And so I say, I am the chief seat of knowledge in the world. And so, of course, humanity chooses to rebel against God, eats the fruit of that tree, and it creates a fracture in humanity's relationship with God from that time forward. God created everything that it would reproduce after its kind. And so every person born of Adam inherits this separation, a knowledge that God is there, But a distance from God. That first covenant, theologians call the covenant of works. Somebody say that with me just to make me feel better. Covenant of works. That was terrible. Try it again. Covenant of works. Covenant of works. It was a covenant based upon the righteous deeds of the individual, Adam. Okay? That was the covenant that was established, the covenant of works. Okay? Now, that's the first covenant we see God making. But there's a second covenant that you get shadows of from the very beginning. A second covenant. Scholars, theologians call this the covenant of redemption. Now this, interestingly enough, is not a covenant between God and people. It's a covenant between God and himself. Alright? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, probably the greatest mystery, the Trinity, the Godhead, three persons, all God, fully God, three in one, right? And so three in one, this Godhead makes a covenant within itself. So Father commits to Son, who commits to Spirit, who commits to Father, who commits to Spirit, who commits to Son. And so there's this commitment between the three of them, and they call it, theologians call it the covenant of redemption, where they commit that even though humanity has broken the covenant of works, they make a covenant between themselves that they, in fact, will establish a new road back to God through a mediator, okay? And so they make this divine covenant. Now, we pick it up in Genesis chapter 22, where we just read, and when we hear that verse I just read, I'm smack in the middle of a story. And so if you don't know the story, and if you don't know the story before the story, then the the little portion that I read doesn't really resonate the way that it should, okay? So a lot's already happened. Let me give you some backstory. God chooses a man named Abram, Abram, okay? He lives in a particular area and uh, God says Abram, he speaks to Abram. We don't know exactly how, whether it was through a dream or a vision or an angel or whatever, but God speaks to Abram and he says I want you to come with me. Leave your father's home. Leave everything you know and follow me. I'm the creator of the universe. Okay? And so Abram believes him and he follows God and God makes a covenant with this man, Abram. He takes him outside and he says, Abraham, I want you to look at all the stars. And he says, see all these stars? These Stars are so so many. So will your offspring be? Now that's a pretty incredible promise. Because if you know the story, Abram was old and he had no kids. So it's a little complicated, right? Okay, I, I I believe you, God, but this is a little bit more complicated. It's not like I got sixteen kids and I just have to believe. You know, I have no kids. So pick it up in Genesis 17. Little backstory here. Going to read seven verses. Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was ninety-nine years old. It's kind of old, right? The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but I'm changing it up. But your name shall be called Abraham, for I've made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings Shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. For and look at that next word. Everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And so Abram makes this incre- or God makes this incredible promise to Abram. He's now known as Abraham, which means father of many nations. But if you know the story of Abram, it's not just filled with glorious success, right? It's also filled with incredible mistakes, Example, He leaves the place that God calls him out of, or of the Chaldeans, to go to Canaan for a new land. And the first thing he has to do is pass through Egypt. Maybe you know the story. And so he's scared. Remember, these are different times, okay? Times where there's not so much you know, technology, not so much government structure. These are barbaric times. And so Abram has to leave and go through Egypt. And Egypt is a pretty hostile place. And so his wife, Sarah, is very beautiful. So instead of telling everybody that she's his wife, he says that she's his sister. Okay? No big deal, except that now other guys marry her. And so other guys, so he basically, you know, gives away his wife just to protect his own neck. It comes out. It becomes a big problem. He gets kicked out of Egypt. He leaves with his wife. But now she had been, you know, being, you know, sexually active with guys that were not her husband because he was scared. I mean, all of this chaos. So now I'm sure she wasn't exactly thrilled about that arrangement, right? And so now she and him go to another land. And as they're going, they go through all types of other chaos. But God gives them a promise. I'm going to give you a son. Time goes by. And time goes by time goes by. You ever had time go by on a promise from God? And you're like, okay, it's been 10 minutes, God. We talked about that last week. (laughs) It's been 10 minutes. Why Why haven't you come through yet? Well, this had been years and years and years and years and years and years and years. And so he got a little anxious. And so uh, Sarah comes up with this great idea. She says, you know what? I'm really old. Why don't you sleep with my servant? Why don't you sleep with my servant, have sex with my servant who's not your wife, which doesn't honor God. Why don't you do that and uh, maybe God will give us our offspring that way. And so Abraham does that. He sleeps with Hagar, the servant of Sarah. She has a son named Ishmael and that was not the promise or the plan of God. God chose to do it a supernatural way, not a natural way. And so now he has this other son. Unfortunately, it causes all types of problems because eventually the promise of God does come to pass. Sarah has a son named Isaac and so now he's got two sons, which one's going to inherit the promise. There's jealousy between the two, and eventually Hagar and Ishmael are sent out of the camp and are no longer allowed to be a part of the family. So it's been pretty sloppy. Now from that day, years go by. In fact, many people don't realize this. When by the time you get to Genesis 22, Isaac, the son, the promised son, born of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, is already somewhere between 25 and 35 years old. Okay, so he's not a spring chicken. He's been around a little while. He's a young man, all right? And now we see Abraham facing the greatest test of his life. Pick it up with me in Genesis 22, verse 1. We're going to get all the way down to verse 14, which is the verse we started with today. Y'all doing okay so far? You can just turn to somebody near you and say, This is going to be great. You should really pay attention. Come on, just tell them. Just tell them. You should, you should really pay attention. I know you're already zoning out because he's talking about covenants. So come on, focus. Genesis chapter 22. These things, after these things, we know what these things are. I just hit a bunch of them. After these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. God said to him, He said, Take your son. Look at the language. Your only son, Isaac. He was his only son because Ishmael had been sent away. So he was solo now. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love. He was very aware of the fact that this was a promise of decades upon decades. That everything Abraham had was being bet on his son. That he was following God his whole life, wandering through the wilderness. All because he had confidence that God was going to fulfill his promise through his son, Isaac. Take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Well, that's an inconvenient command, right? Oh, God, what do, what do you mean? All, all of a sudden, this is super confusing. Have you ever felt like, as you're trying to follow God, he's outlined a specific plan for you, and then the entire plan that he outlined for you blows up in your face? Has that ever happened to you before, where you're like, Okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to marry this girl. We're going to go... And then, like, within a year, everything that you were planning... <laughs> And then you plan again. Okay, no, I know God has a special magic plan for me. And you plan it all out. And then the next year, it all blows up again. And then, and then you're five years in. You're like, oh, I really figured this out. And then after a while, you're like, all right, I'm just going to plan today. We're going to plan today because everything seems to go differently than I planned it, right? And here, I'm sure Abraham had been planning and planning, prepping everything. God gave him a specific promise about Isaac. It says in the scripture, in Isaac, your offspring shall be named. So this is kind of a perplexing moment. If in Isaac, my offspring shall be named, why are you telling me to kill my offspring? Now there's a lot of concerns here. Concern number one is this isn't like you, God. I thought you were good and loving. How many of us have ever said, why would a good and loving God do that? could imagine that that crossed Abraham's mind. You know what else I was thinking? What would you feel? What would you think? There's a variety of emotions that you may experience in this moment. One emotion that may find its place in you, if you're like me, is when you get a command like this from God. Sure, you're shocked that God would ask you to do that, but there's something inside you that's going, I knew it. I deserve this. You know, I slept with Hagar not cool. Pimped out my wife. Not cool. <laughs> Sent my son away. Not very cool. I deserve this. I I deserve for the promise to just blow up in my face. Many of us would feel that way. Some of us don't take the road of guilt. Others of us take the road of bitterness. You know, God, you know, I thought we had a deal here. I thought you were good. Why would you make so much pain come to my Life. Why would you make me destroy the very thing that you've given me? Why would you ask me to sacrifice the blessing that I've been waiting for for so long? Think about all the tensions, the bitterness. Really, God? How could you do this to me? How could you let this happen? How could you let her die of cancer? How could you let this job fall apart? How could you let this marriage fall apart? God, I thought you were good. What's the deal here? I can't trust this. I can't believe this. There's a lot of things that Abraham could have been feeling in this moment. When's the last time you killed somebody? Some of you are like, okay. um, Probably not recently. I mean, hopefully. If not, we'll pray for you afterwards. Um, That didn't go so well. (laughs) Killing somebody is a pretty intense thing. Killing anything is pretty intense, is it not? Some of you know my saga with uh, squirrels. Squirrels, for some reason, love to eat holes in the side of my house. And we try to do the humane thing. In fact, I have a trap in my car right now. But not because the squirrels in my car, but because I'm bringing it home to try to trap them. But, and, you know, we bought the little powder. The, the, the squirrels in my house eat the powder that's supposed to keep them away. You know, like you sprinkle the powder on, like, that'll keep them away. Our squirrels are like... I'm a city squirrel, dude, I can eat anything, you know, you know, I, you, you can't put this powder out here, think it's going to scare me away, and so we've tried everything to try to get rid of these squirrels, but, but you know, um, still they, they, they make holes in the side of my house, and so I got some estimates about what it would take to get an exterminator there, and it was like hundreds of hundreds of dollars, and so as I'm hearing this, I'm thinking, I have a BB gun in my closet, you know, and it's free, and and maybe I should just do what has to be done, and so anyways, if you're like a humanitarian, don't call Pete on me or anything, but there have been a few who have died, all right? And so they, the other day, there's one frolicking along in my yard, and my wife, my kids are like, get it, get it, get it. And so I run out there with the BB gun. I'm standing there with my BB gun. He's frolicking along in my yard, and there's thousands of squirrels, right? And I'm thinking to myself, as I look at this little frolicking squirrel, I don't know if he's the one who dug the hole into my house, you know? How should I, you know, this sense of justice just, why would this innocent one suffer for all the wickedness of the other squirrels, you know? And I'm, I just couldn't shoot it. I couldn't shoot it. And of course, my friend Cheech was like, dude, really? You didn't shoot the squirrel he was right there and so you know I just I there was something inside me this sense of justice like I just can't shed innocent blood what if he's just a happy little squirrel that hasn't done anything wrong and he just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and I'm slaughtering him you know and I I, so I'm trying to relate that to Abraham here I mean think about this moment if I'm struggling to shoot a squirrel don't judge me how much more Is Abraham struggling to take a knife and plunge it into the chest of his son? I mean, I have three sons. To think about taking a knife and plunging it into the chest of your son, this is an outrageous experience. I can't do that. I can't watch the blood pour out of his chest. I can't do that. It says your only son, the son you love. In other words, all your eggs are in this basket, Abraham. So all these emotions potentially going through Abraham's heart, guilt, shame, regret, confusion, fear, despair, angry at himself, angry at Sarah, angry at God. How could all this happen? But interestingly enough, and this is the point I want to make today, it seems as though none of that motivated Abraham to make his next decision. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early. He just got the command to kill his son. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled the donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood of the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young men, check this out. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Come again to you. I and the boy will will come again to you. He's acting as if he's either going to disobey God or Abraham is so convinced of the promise that not even death can stop God from fulfilling it. He's so convinced that God's going to honor his word that he's acting as if he expects Isaac to rise from the dead if he kills him. Verse six and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. Now I want you to picture this. Abraham's about hundred and million years old, Isaac's about twenty-five, twenty-six, right? not a little boy. Okay. And so Abraham took the wood, blah, blah, blah. verse seven, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. And he said, behold, practical question. We got the fire. We got the wood. There's no lamb here for the burnt offering. Where is the lamb? Abraham said, hold on before you read verse eight. Think about this for a moment. Isaac's pretty practical. He's saying, uh, dad, we're missing something. I know it's been a few years and you know, you're up there and you know, maybe you forgot that you kind of need a sacrifice for a sacrifice to happen. And he says uh, in verse eight, here we go. Abraham, Response I want you to catch this because this will change your life. Verse 8: Verse 8, he says, This Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. God will provide for himself the lamb. Abraham is working off of a specific revelation. See, he realized, stay with me today, he realized that God, through the course of his life, had been inviting him into a covenant. Right? Again and again, God speaks to Abraham about a covenant. This covenant, this agreement, this sacred agreement between God and humanity. And we've seen the covenant of works and it failed because Adam rebelled. And now we see in Abraham God inviting the human race into a new covenant. Right? And he became, Abraham, became wholeheartedly convinced that God was going to act in line with the covenant that he had outlined. And so he's convinced that this new covenant changes the way God interacts with humanity. Now, Abraham understood that he was unworthy. He understood that he didn't deserve grace, that he didn't deserve God's favor, but Abraham also was deeply convinced of something that you are potentially not so convinced of. Abraham was deeply convinced that the creator of the universe loved him. He believed that this creator, this distant God who he had interacted with many times, loved him. He was convinced by the actions of God and by the words of God that God loved him. And so he realized, I can't get to God. I can't satisfy God's justice. I am sinful. I am far. But I'm convinced that God loves me so much that God's going to find a way for me to get to God. That God is going to blaze a trail. That he will satisfy his own justice. And that's why he says to his son, God will provide for himself. Do you see it? God will, he was convinced of this. The God I believe in is a God who provides for himself a sacrifice. The God I believe in is a God who realizes that my righteousness will never get me to God. And out of his audacious love for me, out of his covenant of redemption that he made Father, Son, and Spirit, he will provide for himself a sacrifice. See, it's his job to display his mercy and his kindness and his love. It's God's job, his job to display his mercy and his kindness. It's God's job to satisfy his own justice. And it's my job, Abraham would say, not to try to satisfy my own justice because I'm wholly, completely, absolutely unworthy. It's just my job to believe that God will satisfy his own justice. And we see emerging here a third covenant. A covenant that is a framework and a foundation for all interaction with humanity from this day forward. Scholars, theologians call it the covenant of grace. And if you want to write something down, you can write this down. Grace is the foundation for all of God's interaction with me. Grace. What is grace? Unearned, undeserved favor. God made a covenant within himself to redeem humanity. And by redeeming humanity, bring a road back to God. And Abraham became so convinced that God was going to show him undeserved, unearned favor. He says, I can sacrifice my son, my promised son, but I know that God himself will provide a sacrifice. And so if God leads me to plunge this knife into my son's chest, I can know for sure that my son will rise again because my God has promised me. Now, we know today that it's not God's will for you to plunge the knife into your son's chest. Don't leave believing that, okay? It's not God's will to do that. We know that in this story and in many others, God has showed that that's not his will. But in the midst of a pagan culture, in the midst where of a time when other people did this to sacrifice to the gods that they believed in, this moment differentiates the true God from all the false gods. And look what happens in the end of the story. Verse 9. So they came to the place which God had told him. That's interesting. There was a specific place. We'll get back to that. Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order to, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Notice, his son is 25. He's hundred and something. He is letting his dad tie him up, okay? Isaac apparently trusted so much that he decided not to resist. That's important as well. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold behind Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram, offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Verse fourteen, where we started. So Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. See, you've got to understand the essence of this story in Galatians chapter three in the New Testament. It tells us, check this out that God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. That somehow in his interactions with God, Abraham understood something fundamental about the agreement God was making between himself and humanity. He understood that the agreement was founded on undeserved favor. He understood that the interactions with God could only come not by a covenant of works, but by a covenant of undeserved favor where God himself provided for us a way back to God, a sacrifice. And what Abraham saw in in shadows, you and I get to see in panoramic view. Because 2,000 years after Abraham stood up there on that mount, Mount Moriah, 2,000 years later, there was a baby born in Bethlehem. And he grew up. He was about the same age as Isaac. But this particular man was perfect before God, blameless, perfectly fulfilling every aspect of the original covenant of works, perfectly fulfilling the covenant between God and Adam, perfectly obeying every aspect of that covenant. He took the symbol of that covenant... And just like Isaac carried the wood up the mountain, so Jesus carries the tree of life, the wood, up the mountain. And he is then nailed to the symbol of the covenant of works to prove for all time that that covenant has been absolutely fulfilled. Now, if you remember, in the curse that God brings to Adam, when he speaks the curse over the earth, he says, Cursed is the earth, thorns and thistles it will bring up. The symbol of the curse was the thorns. And so Jesus takes the symbol of the curse and he puts it on his head. See, the symbol of the blessing of the covenant of works was the tree. And so Jesus nails himself to the tree. The greatest pain, the greatest anguish, the greatest suffering in the world. Look at me for a second is displayed in this story because though Abraham never plunged the knife into the heart of his son, God the Father stood on Calvary. And with the greatest suffering and with the greatest anguish and with the greatest pain, God himself plunged the knife of death into the heart of his perfect son. says in the scripture, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Interestingly enough, that word provided is a Hebrew word. Stay with me today. It's literally from the verb to see. Okay. So when it says on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Another translation of that phrase is on the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Or more specifically on the mount of the Lord, he shall be seen. Now remember, twice in the story that we just read, God specifically tells Abraham to go to a particular place on Mount Moriah, right? If you know your Bible, and maybe you've never heard this, on 2 Chronicles chapter 3, God leads Solomon many, many, many years after Abraham. God leads Solomon to build a temple. Guess where? Mount Moriah. And so here he is on Mount Moriah, right in the same mountain range that Abraham had sacrificed Isaac or offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. Now Solomon builds a temple and every sacrifice that happens between the people of God and the Jewish state as it grows and grows and grows and becomes a great nation. Every sacrifice happens in the same place where Abraham himself offered Isaac. Now through the years, the geography has changed slightly and somewhere along the line, a quarry was built deep into the mountain. And so today, if you go to Israel, there's the place on the Temple Mount where they believe the temple was, and there's a deep quarry. But on the other side of that quarry, there's a high point. And if you look up on that high point, right in the mountain, kind of like we have Sleeping Giant in Hamden, Connecticut, right in the mountain, it appears that there is a skull in the mountain. And most historians believe that that place is Golgotha, the place of the skull, better known as Calvary. See, there was no quarry in Abraham's day. And it was the habit to when you made a sacrifice on a mountain to climb to the highest point. Now, historians and scholars will debate this, but the evidence seems to point that on the very place where Abraham held up the knife to slaughter his son, 2,000 years later, the Romans would erect a cross. And it was right there on that mountain, Mount Moriah, that God the Father plunged the knife into his only son. Crushed his son so that our sins could be forgiven. And isn't it interesting that Abraham calls that place on the Mount of the Lord, he shall be seen. See, God is an artist. And he's been taking this story of grace And he's been painting it on the canvas of humanity For generations and generations He's been painting layer upon layer Color upon color Image upon image Painting it on the canvas of humanity He showed it to Abraham By leading him up to Mount Moriah He shows it even clearer to us By pointing us back to the cross of Christ Long God is painting a picture saying, hey, look at me. I don't want to be far from you. Hello, I don't. Why are you still basing your relationship with me off the covenant of works? You're never going to get there. Oh, if I do a little better, God's going to like me. If I work a little harder, he's going to honor me. Well, if I just try a little more, he's going to bless me. Do you not realize that the foundation of your blessing is unmerited favor? Favor you do not deserve grace you have not earned. He earned it on your behalf. What does he want you to do? Believe. He wants you to believe that God could love you like that. You don't know how many times I messed up. You don't know how many times I failed. You don't know how many times I've forgotten. You don't know how many times I've walked away. You don't know how deep the wounds have gone in the arms of Jesus. You don't know how much blood poured out, but I can tell you this. There's more than enough. There's more than enough. Just stand with me this morning. In this moment right now, remember I didn't I told you today I wasn't going to give you seven points, I wasn't going to give you the 10 keys. Instead, I wanted you in this moment to do some deep heart inventory. Here's the question for you. Do I live my life every moment of every day not in theory, but in practice? upon an understanding of the agreement or the covenant of grace. See, it's the covenant of grace that proves for us for all time that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God in him. All of Christ's righteousness is imputed to me, but there is a condition, friend, Just like Adam had a condition, so the covenant of grace has a condition. And this is why in Ephesians 2, it teaches us by grace, you have been saved through faith. Abraham believed God and this inaugurated a new covenant. Jesus confirms the covenant on the cross in the exact same place thousand years after Christ made the covenant sure you and I have an opportunity to interact with God right here at the Long Wharf Theater middle of August of 2014 we have an opportunity to interact with God and our interaction with God can be based on well uh, I'm kind of bitter God I'm bitter because it didn't work out the way I thought you said it was going to work out or it can be based on I'm kind of guilty God I've messed up so many times or it can be based on I'm kind of confused God You haven't answered all of my questions. Or it can be built on I know you love me because of the cross. And I cross the line of faith. And I believe that you accept me in the midst of my mud. And in the midst of my failure and in the midst of my shame, I believe that right now you're washing me of all my guilt. I believe that right now your face is shining favor upon me. I believe that right now you are opening and extending your hand of unmerited favor towards me. See, God's inviting you the same way God invited Abraham to believe that he loves you that much. I want to do something we don't often do here at City Church. Um, We're going to sing a new song. And uh, I want you just to hear these words. I want to just read the beginning of this song to you. Why don't you close your eyes just for a moment. Close your eyes just for a moment. Let this be a moment with you and God. The song says this. Beneath the cross of Jesus Christ, no shadow remains for shame to hide. Redemption shone for all to see. Perfection bore our penalty with a grace so glorious. Immortal day, the veil was torn when mercy donned a crown of thorns. As law gave way to liberty and freedom for humanity with a grace so glorious. Oh, the glory of the Savior's love surrounding our surrender. This is my favorite part. To know forever we are welcomed home. Forever we are welcomed home. Forever we are welcomed home. home. conscience that separates you from God? Is there any unbelief? I find that I have this tendency to divert back to law. I have this tendency to feel distant from God even when he's proven for all time that he's close to me. I have this tendency to believe that he's not for me even though the scripture teaches if God is for us, who can be against us? He who sacrificed, check this out, his own son. If he did that, how will he not also with him freely, graciously give us all things? It says in Romans 5 that those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We're going to sing this song, and this is okay if this fails. I'm pretty secure because God loves me, even if you don't. But I just felt this. I saw this in my spirit as I was praying about this morning. And sometimes I see things in my spirit and I fail. And that's cool. I'm I'm cool with that. But if God's pressing on you and you need an encounter with grace today and you say, Justin, what you're saying is just it's resonating. I need an encounter with grace. I'm going to just open up the dance floor here. okay? and I'm going to get down on my knees as we start to sing this song and if God's really pressing on you and you're saying, I need this truth to be massaged in my heart and I feel like God's drawing me to that place of decision, I need an encounter. Well, then this area up front is open to you. I just want to urge you, I know it's not comfortable down here. There's lights. There's no cushions. But I want to encourage you, if you want to, if you're hungry for that encounter with God and an understanding in a deep way of His grace being cemented on your soul, sometime during this song, if you'd like, I want to encourage you to just come down here and get on your knees and let's allow this to be a moment where we interact with God. And you can stay in your seat too if you want, that's fine. No judgment either way, it's between you and God. But I, I just felt like I wanted to invite you, if that's where you're at, as we sing this song, if you want to join me and say, God, I need an encounter with this grace. I need it to be massaged into the core of my soul. I want to invite you to do that. Let's pray in the word of sing. Father, I pray that as we worship today, That there would be an impartation. That there would be a divine transfer. I pray that you would fill this room with your glory. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would do something in our hearts today. That we would understand grace in a way like we never have. And that the truth of your goodness and your grace would become If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. At For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.